following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Perhaps you boys and girls, when you go out to public, maybe going to a, a party at a friend's house or some other function, or maybe even in the, the grocery store with, with mom or dad, your parents will tell you something like this, remember the way you behave reflects who we are as a family. Your behavior reflects on what we do at home. And that's very true, isn't it? That if you behave poorly in public, People are going to think not only badly of you, they're going to think badly of your parents. They're going to think badly of your home. This is also true spiritually. Our behavior is a reflection on the Lord. Our behavior is a reflection on the congregation. When we behave well in public, God is honored. But when we would sin, remember what God said concerning David uh, in his awful sin with Bathsheba, that he had slandered, blasphemed God's name among the nations. So as Christians, our public behavior is a reflection on God and the church. It's also a reflection, though, on the reality of who we are, not just what the church is, not just what the family is, but Jesus says, by, by their fruit you shall know them. You don't get figs from a uh, a thorn bush. You don't get grapes from bramble. And so, as we think today about righteousness, we want to think about how it manifests itself. We saw last week in this introduction to the book of Job that he is described by the writer, and as we read further here, he's described by God as a man who is blameless, upright, or righteous, who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, part of his conduct would be seen in how he turns away from evil, but, you know, really, in one sense, blamelessness and righteousness and fearing God uh, are not things that are, are visible to those around us. They can't read our hearts. They will only be visible in our behavior, right? Now, righteousness, as we saw last or two weeks ago, is manifested in how particularly we treat our neighbor according to the law. But now, in verses um, 2 through 5, God shows us exactly how Job's righteous character uh, manifested itself publicly. We saw that Job was the portrait for us of what a godly man and woman should be. Here we see a further portrait of the public and family behavior of a righteous man. And that uh, a righteous man serves God well, both in his public capacity and also in his family. A righteous person serves God well, both in his public capacity and in his family responsibilities. So we put Job up again as a portrait, this time of the, uh, the public piety of a righteous man and the domestic piety of a righteous man. Let's begin with uh, Job's public persona. Who was he? Uh, what was his behavior? And we told right off uh, in verse 3 that he was a very wealthy man. You consider that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 
and 500 female donkeys with very many servants. Now, the very types of animals tell us something about his, his location, his occupation. He was an animal breeder. And he would breed the animals for their wool and their milk and, and the meat. But he was also a merchant of animals. To have uh, 500 female donkeys would teach us that he was raising donkeys to sell to others. And he was a farmer. He had 500 yoke of oxen, as we see later, uh, cultivating the land in verse 14. And the amount of land that you would need both to sustain that livestock and to cultivate that with the, all these 500 yoke of oxen. Uh, he was a very wealthy man. This was how wealth would have been described in the days of, of the patriarch. And, and from this, we are reminded that, uh, uh, that there's no tension between wealth and godliness. God has not looked down on wealth. In fact, God is the one who gives it. Some of the greatest saints of the Old Testament were wealthy men. Noah, Abraham, and his sons. Here uh, we find Job. We recognize that the wealth is given to his people from God. Now, he doesn't do all of that on a great scale, but God is the one who blesses us with some degree of material prosperity. We read this morning the fifth commandment and that promise from the fifth commandment, and our catechism interprets that promise this way. The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. It is a promise of long life and prosperity. That promise, though, is executed in the wisdom of God when it's for His glory and for our good, particularly our good. Uh, wealth is a, is a great temptation. Paul deals with that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It easily leads to idolatry and to self-centeredness and to a lifestyle that is contrary to the lifestyle of a believer. And so God, as he gives a believer greater wealth, he gives that person grace to deal with that wealth. But what we really understand is, is that whatever you have today, that is a blessing given to you by God. He is the one who has provided for you. He delights in heaping material blessings upon us. It's simply our hearts that are so prone to turn away uh, from God that is the restraint, the regulator on what God does for us. But even those who would be the poorest amongst us must confess how God has provided and that we have a warm place to sleep. We have food to eat. And we have those intangibles of, of friends and flowers and music and the promise that God who cares for the beasts of the earth. How much more does he care for those of us whom he's chosen in Christ and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ? God blesses. God delights in blessing. God also, with blessing, sends something else. And that is the freedom, the joy to enjoy those blessings. There are a lot of wealthy people who live in a lot of nice houses, who don't have a moment of peace. They have no satisfaction. While they can be a very poor person who is quite content, as Solomon teaches us, because they have God. You see, God not only gives us our possessions, He gives us as His children the 
ability to enjoy those possessions, as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5.19, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. You see, empowered you to eat from it and to rejoice in your labor. That is a blessing of God. But as we read here about Job's wealth, we also see in this portrait of the public piety of a godly man that he was not self-centered um, in his possessions. He didn't make them an end in themselves. In fact, he saw it as a stewardship, even as Paul would say in Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with him who has need. Now Job did that. He would share in Job 31. If I've kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it, but from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, if he's not been worn with the fleece of my sheep, let me be cursed. You see, Job saw wealth as a, as a stewardship. And as a gift from God that he was then to use, not simply on himself. Now, there's no standard of, of what a person would spend on himself outside the fact that he must be generous with the work of the Lord. And he must be generous with those who are around him. And so Job's wealth was spent in the service of God. And as that is a portrait for you and me, we must be good stewards of that which God has given us, both in how we care for it, how we look at it, but also we must be good stewards in, uh, in giving to the work of the church with the tithe, and that is the regulator then of what you spend on yourself, with the tithe being the basis of our giving. And there's a freedom then after that for how a person might spend his money. Um, and then our, our generosity to the poor, well, today we have a church. God's given the church deacons uh, to help regulate this giving of the money to the poor. This is why we have a deacon's offering uh, with every communion, something the church has done ever since the, uh, we know, the second century. That's something that the Reformed Church has done through the centuries. And uh, this lays the foundation for what we'll be able to do, in addition to taking out of our general funds as we receive them and as we have deacons to distribute to the poor, first the poor within our own congregation, in the parish that we would deal with, and then uh, more broadly. And so Job uh, is this portrait of a wealthy man, a man of possession, and admit it, compared to the rest of the world, every one of us here today is, is very wealthy. But we also see that Job was uh, useful in the public sphere. Um, you notice that it says of him, a little line after the description of his wealth in verse 3, that that man, and that's the word for a noble man, was the greatest of all the men of the East. The men of the East, this land that Job lived in, south southeast of uh, Palestine, were known for wisdom. In fact, uh, when the historian writes about Solomon's wisdom, he said he was more wise than the men of the East. Job was 
the wisest of the wisest. His friends who came to him were, were noble men. They, they were wise men. But Job was the wisest amongst them. And again, that wisdom was exercised on behalf of the community, the society, the culture where he lived. We've noted that uh, he lived near enough to the city, if not in the city, that he was an elder in the gates and chief elder. He writes of himself in chapter 29. To me they listened and waited and kept count silent for my counsel. After my words they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain, and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. In the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them, sat as a chief, and dwelt as king among them, among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. So that he took his prestige, his position, and he also used that on behalf of uh, the community. He tells us how he uh, defended the widows and the poor and exonerated the innocent in this exercise uh, in his public capacity. We too, uh, as we live in a sense as exiles, pressing on to our heavenly home, need to get this mindset that Job had, that um, his piety was not something that exempted him from being uh, of usefulness to the people that were around him. Jeremiah teaches us how to pray in our exile. In Jeremiah 29, the Lord of hosts says, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, and become fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. And by the way, we hear people today, Christians, saying, well, you know, everything's getting so bad. I don't know if I want to have children. And here's God telling the exiles in Jerusalem, have children, have grandchildren. Be sure your children are properly wed. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So Job is a picture to us of how we work this out, how we live as exiles uh, in strange, foreign, and often ungodly places. Let me suggest some principles. In the first place, we would uh, serve God publicly uh, in the pursuit of our vocation. And there's a couple things about this. William Perkins points out that uh, as you consider vocation, boys, girls, Part of the consideration of what you would do with your life is how does that particular job or opportunity help those around you? Is it a calling that will benefit society, that will serve others, so that we're not simply looking for a way to, to make money or to put food on the table, but to, to have a calling from God by which we can benefit those around us? Now that will vary from types of callings that God gives you and places where you are, but all of us should have that as a consideration. Whether we're working uh, in a factory, uh, whether we are teaching school, whether we're digging a ditch, or running government or a great business, uh, are we doing this for God's glory and in some way to benefit those who are around us? And then furthermore, in our vocation, we do a public service as we perform our work unto God. As Paul talks to 
Christian slaves who have Christian masters, how uh, actually their relationship to their master and work is even a greater declaration of the beauty and glory of the gospel. And so we do our work as unto God, which means we do it well to, to the best of our ability, and, and uh, we treat properly those who are around us, over us, and under us. And so we can be a service to the broader society, uh, how we pursue our vocations. Second, we can be a service uh, to those around us by how we uh, live outside of our vocation. Particularly, I'm thinking in terms both of our service in the church and as there's time, our service beyond the church. Now, our church service should take first place with our, our extra time that we would have. We serve the Lord in that way. But as we have gifts and time, we should look around us. What can I do? to use uh, my energy, my time, for the broader community. Some will end up working at a crisis pregnancy center or taking someone into their home, an unwed mother. Others will be uh, involved maybe politically according to the gifts and interests that God has given them. When your children are young, you be involved uh, with their sports teams, uh, managing or coaching and, and helping out there. Uh, it will change in the time of life and with with the energy and gifts that you have, but we ought to be thinking how our outward lives properly glorify God and can serve those who are around us through our church service and through the service that we do in the community. And of course, the third way, and in a sense the most important way, and these other two feed into this, is that uh, as Christians to uh, Proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more, nothing better than we can do for our neighbors than to do that. And that first gets back to all the other, and it's how we live. Are you living in such a way that people see something in your life that is different? I often, in speaking to students as they've come to seminary over the years, will ask them how they came to Christ. And, and so often, it's, it's, it's a truism that you hear it time and again. Uh, I had a roommate, or I saw this person, or my next door neighbor, and there was something about their life that was different from my life. And I wanted to know what it was. That was the first thing that the Spirit used in bringing people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are salt and light. As salt, we are the preservation of the culture. We bring verve and, and joy to the culture, but we also, uh, by our lives, uh, let the light of God shine on the culture. But now it cannot be living without words, you see. It must be the explanation, what makes you different. And so you want to do as uh, Paul prays for us or instructs us in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be gracious and seasoned as it were with salt. So that as you are out and about, you leave the house praying for opportunities to speak to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. You let your speech be seasoned as such that anything that's going on in the world is grist for your mill. The headlines, what people are talking about, can be the simple way that you can bring to bear in the conversation the beauty, the glory, the wisdom, the sovereignty of God. That then might, at that conversation or later, open doors to speak more to them or to invite them to church. I hope you're doing that. We long to see visitors. We hope the parish evangelism will, will provoke that. But the number one way that people will visit Antioch Presbyterian Church is when you and I invite them, encourage them to come, 
take them home with us then if they come for dinner. This is part of our public service. The most important part of it is to proclaim the gospel. And so Job's piety manifested itself in how he used his wealth, how he used his prestige and place in the community to benefit others. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to us about his domestic piety. The very first thing he tells us, and perhaps you've not thought about it, but he had a large and happy family. You say happy is the, the important truth. No, he had a large family. He had seven sons and three daughters. Now, of course, these numbers in the Bible are symbolic um, for perfection, both seven, three, and the sum of seven and three, ten. But Job really did have seven sons and three daughters. We know this because um, after they're killed and at the end of days, God adds to him seven sons and three daughters, and we're given the names of the daughters. As Job was a real man, these were real children. Now, I think that the numbers are also used to show that God blessed this family. It was indeed a holy and, and happy family. Now, you see their happiness in the, the little thing that's important because of what happens to the children, but uh, the seven sons, who by this time were all old enough to be having their own place in society, working with their father uh, in the business, but each one had his own house. And on some kind of cycle, as we read here, that uh, each brother in turn, from the oldest to the youngest, would hold a feast in his house, verse 4, and uh, on his day, send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. It's a bit ambiguous. Probably on his birthday, and with each birthday, there would be a, a few days of feasting. The brothers each had their own estate, but the sisters they were home still unmarried, and so they invite them. But now, you see how they enjoyed being together. This is why I call it a, a happy family. It is a harmonious family. Now, we know how even as they're little, the children sometimes do not get along. They pick, they bicker, they, they hurt feelings. And how much more so 10 adults, even if they're from the same parents. We know this, there are different personalities, different characteristics. Uh, they easily could be at odds with one another. I often meet people uh, who uh, have no relationship with a brother or a sister. I have no real relationship with my brother. He's, he's unconverted. But I know people who say their kin are, are Christians and they just don't get along. They, they don't want to be together. So what's, what's being manifest here? Job reared his children from infancy to live together in a home that is holy and happy. Now, a lot of you here have large families. You know, that is a major work to be able to, to do that. But we must be committed to that. Whether we have two children or whether we have six or ten or whatever, our commitment must be, by God's grace, to see them molded together into a harmonious family. We pray for that, but we must nurture them. He must not allow them uh, to speak rudely or cruelly or sarcastically or uh, in any wrong way to a brother or a sister. We must model for them by not speaking to uh, husbands and wives to one another in any disrespectful manner and not allowing ourselves to speak to our children in a disrespectful manner. It takes work living together day in, day out. But by God's grace, 
We mold a happy and harmonious family. Of course, the, the number one way that Job did this was to cultivate hearts of piety in his children. And we see here an example of how he did that. In verse 5, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So at the end of each cycle of feasts, through the year, the seven feasts, after that first each feast, Job would gather all of his children to himself in order to consecrate them and to offer sacrifices. Now, the reason is, he says, perhaps. He doesn't know that they did. Uh, they were obviously, by even the language, perhaps godly and uh, pious men and women. But perhaps in the middle of feasting, um, they sinned inadvertently and curse God in their hearts. Now there's a translation difficulty here. The word translated curse is actually the word bless. It is the same word then that's used when uh, Satan uh, taunting God said that uh, uh, verse 11, put forth your hand now, touch all he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Now because of that some people have added uh, not blessed or other things in the text which are not there. But actually, both in the Greek and Hebrew language, sometimes words just carry the opposite meaning in a certain context. We don't know exactly why that developed. We could think that um, cursing could come first from speaking sarcastically or inadvertently about someone here about God, not reverently. And this is an important reminder. If we don't speak of God in a proper manner, then in a sense, we're always taking his name in vain. And so whatever it was that Job thought was just possible, and we know how it is, you get into a group of people, uh, you're having a party, you're enjoying good wine, the tongue can get a little loose, and you can say something with respect to God or, or, or Christian living or whatever that simply isn't correct. It was no great sin that concerned Job at this point. It was merely the, what we would call light sins, and sometimes you and I don't take them seriously enough. But because he was cultivating piety in his children, after each party, he would gather them together, first to consecrate them. That would entail both a ceremonial and moral cleansing of any unrighteousness or filth, and calling them to self-examination, repentance, and confession of sin. So you see, this was not being done in some formalistic manner. No, he's dealing with their hearts. He's helping them think through, even as adults. And there's a very keen insight here that even as adult sons and daughters, of course the daughters are still at home, but as adult sons, they still were under the spiritual authority of their father. And as long as he properly exercises that authority, they need, you and I need to give heed uh, to it. And then he would offer up burnt offering for each of them. That in itself was a great expense. This would be a whole bull completely burned to God. Uh, at this stage of redemptive history, it was merely that we should be consumed by the wrath of God if we were left in our sins. And so the, the offering of the bull was, in a sense, uh, we must be atoned for. 
something must take our place. Of course, even here it's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. God became man. And then after perfect a life of perfect obedience, offered his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, like these whole burnt offerings. He was laid out on Calvary's cross. His deity was the altar itself. And the wrath of God fell on him. The wrath that you and I deserved. And the justice of God was perfectly satisfied. So Job's teaching his sons and his daughters not only that they need atonement, but even this, he's teaching them to look forward to the Savior to come. As, as the child's catechism says, how were the old covenant saints saved? By believing in the Savior to come. Nobody was ever saved in the Old Testament by simply believing that God saves people. No, from Genesis 3.15 forward, there's this clear line of promise that God is going to provide a Redeemer. That was murky at first. But the true elect believed that God would provide a supernatural deliverer. And Job is teaching his children to look ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about our own families then. We see uh, the necessity of cultivating in them holiness. And one of the things, notice that Job himself was diligent about this work and not formalistic. It's a little thing that's added, but it's very important in the Hebrew and that is he rose early in the morning, which in Hebrew idiom always had to do with uh, uh, quickly and, and immediately obeying God. So when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he rose early in the morning. And we often see that. And then notice he did this continually at the end of verse 5. It was his practice. From day one with each one to not only pray for them, but to labor over them, to mold this family together and to direct their hearts to God that they might grow up to be blameless, upright, God-fearers turning away from evil. And so, again, this is what God's calling us to do who are parents. That from the tenderest age that we, as we pray over our children, are to model for them what godliness is, to teach them how to live together in love and harmony. Um, but above all, the whole Christ before them, to, to train them to be daily, regularly in family worship and instruction, to live our lives in front of them, as uh, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, so that uh, in our getting up, our going out, lying down, whatever, we constantly are holding the Lord God and His truth before them. There are those that say that if your children are not converted, that it means that, that you're guilt, your fault. There's nothing in the Bible to say that if you are careful, as I've just explained it, that God will convert all your children. He's sovereign. God does convert the great majority of our covenant children. But I can dogmatically say if you don't use the means that we've described, you have no right to expect one of your children to be converted. God blesses means. God gives us these means to uh, rear our children for him. As we follow the example of Job. The portrait of public piety. The one who, through whom God teaches us that we are to seek usefulness in the public sphere. And above all, usefulness in our home and domestic sphere. May this be... Our heartbeat. And we long to see our 
righteous hearts manifest themselves in behavior consistent with the law of God, but thinking in terms of the world where God has placed us and how can we be better salt and, and, and better light in this world where we live. That we'll go about our, our work uh, as unto God to please Him. That we will look for those opportunities to shine the light of God's truth into the lives of those around us. And that above all, we'll seek in our homes to see God raise up that great host of olive plants around our table that he promises to the man who fears God. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.